The Fed tries to run to the rescue with more than a trillion dollars and fails. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Fast Money on an historic night. The Dow falling an incredible 2,352 points, a nearly 10% drop. That is the single biggest one-day drop since the fateful Black Monday of 1987. Every Dow stock fell, and only one of the entire S&P 500 index rose. With us again on this night for your money and guidance, Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Well, here's how the day played out. Felt like a number of days really rolled all into one. At the open, a quick 7% fall and a trading halt. The Dow down more than 2,000 points. But then, right around 1 p.m. Eastern time, stocks tried to stage a comeback on the back of the news that the Fed will inject $1.5 trillion into the market to prevent a full-blown credit crash. But the excitement was short-lived. Stocks kept falling. And we actually ended the day on the lows. And we have got a huge show for you tonight with a host of big names with Guggenheim Scott Minard and Hess Oil CEO John Hess. We're going to get to those in moments. But first, let's get more on exactly what the Fed did and tried to do today with their trillion and a half dollar injection. We're joined by phone by Steve Leisman. Uh, I'm not on the phone here, uh, Brian. I'm uh, here uh, joining you with two things the uh, Air Federal Reserve did. Uh, in the first instance, it extended its purchases to um, $60 billion across a range of maturities. That's the first thing. The Fed was buying on the short end, and now it's going to buy across a whole range of maturities. And the reason for that is because there's been a lot of dislocation. We'll talk about that in a second. In the Treasury markets, off the runs were in some places not getting bid. That's in the first place. Then it went out and it injected, call it infinity liquidity. $500 billion is not an important number right there. $500 billion means as much as you want on offer to a series of different maturities. On the one hand, uh, it's doing one month. It's doing $500 billion. Three months, $500 billion. A slate of them. Continuing overnight, $175 billion. It's really even difficult to count up how much liquidity will be out there at any one time. But it's an absolute Noah's Ark flood the zone with liquidity. And continue those purchases to April 13th. Let me give you, Brian, a quote here from the New York Fed as to why it did it. If you could put that up for a second, they said these changes are being made through the highly unusual disruptions in treasury financing markets associated with the coronavirus outbreak. In some cases, guys, there are spreads that are wider than they were in 2008. You look, for example, the differential between what's happening in the cash market and what's happening in the futures market. What the Fed is trying to do is to pull in and bring those spreads in and just create liquidity. This is not about the stock market. I don't think the Fed would have expected there to be much impact in the stock market. Uh, and finally, I just want to tell you about some of the things that people are now expecting. Nobody thinks the Fed is quite done yet. They would cut rates to zero, uh, maybe 100 basis points at the next company meeting, more quantitative easing, and perhaps rekindle some of the criteria programs, guys. All right, Steve Leesman. Steve, busy day for you as well as the market. Steve, we do appreciate that. All right, so, Guy, we gained about 1,000 points of the Dow in a couple of minutes when that news broke. Then we tumbled back near the lows. Why do you think that didn't stabilize the stock market? Because people don't trust the Federal Reserve anymore. And, you know, they can say whatever they want. They say this is injection associated with the coronavirus outbreak. That's great. I mean, if you need to have a villain or you need to have something to blame it on, that's wonderful. Except that this started back in September before the term was ever coined. So, you know, call what you want. I mean, and we've said this on this show for a long time now. There's going to come a point when the Fed hits diminishing marginal returns in terms of what they can do. 
And my view for a long time was when 10-year yields got to 1.4% and started to fall, that would be it. And you've seen how crazy the market is. So, I mean, they can inject all the liquidity they want. Again, in terms of consumer behavior, I know, I mean, I'm not running out to Starbucks or the movies or to a hockey game if I could go to one because the Fed just injected. It's got nothing to do with that. And I think... Unfortunately, yeah. I think the market's starting to call them on it. Well, in fact, it's negative you know, utility. In other words, it, it, what happened uh, on the surprise 50 or not so surprise 50 basis point cut. And, and today you had a market that actually went uh, in a negative direction because uh, I think what you got today is and I think the Fed tried to distinguish between this was aim, aimed at a market action and not at a stimulus action. And I think that's very important. And the market action is probably on some level what the Fed has always been there for. Right. You, you want the Fed to step in and and bring some orderly liquidity process to markets when they lose that. And I think that's what today would be described as. I think they would rather go to zero before they want to go into a stimulus-style asset purchase. And I think Steve was alluding to this. So um, today was not supposed to be a white night. And I don't think, as Guy says, there's there's really a silver bullet out there. This, to me, was more, you know, in simple terms about the plumbing, right? The, the pipes had frozen up or were about to freeze up. You had, um, you know, a Treasury bond off auction coming at one o'clock. Ten minutes before that, all of a sudden the Fed comes out and says, you know what, $1.5 trillion. You know, from my context, people I were talking to, the pipes were freezing up. So the Fed had to come in and flush this liquidity into it. I don't think this was designed, and I don't think anybody in the stock market thinks this is designed to say, oh, this is going to stimulate economic behavior. This is just going to make sure that the pipes keep flowing, that you don't have a well. The market cr- didn't act like the, 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 the market acted, Dan, like the pipes are still frozen. Yeah, I, I mean the problem that we have today, I think, is that we're seeing a confluence of events, a confluence of crises, kind of coming together right here. Obviously, there's this health crisis that's unquantifiable, and the problem is it's kind of leaked into a financial crisis, and now there's a bit of a political crisis. It's a crisis of confidence, and so you're just saying that the, the Fed, there's very little confidence in what they can do to stem the losses in risk assets across the board, right? Well, we really do need a coordinated action on the health, on the, on the fiscal, and then the monetary. And that's when things are going to settle down. But until that happens in a really bipartisan and very simple way, we're going to continue to have this downward volatility. Because if you can't hold the gains that we had midday based on that action, that sounded like just a, the, the bazooka and all bazookas on, on, on the plumbing front. And, right. and, and, well, and, and I think you're reminding of important points here. And the black swan, and again, a black swan for people who haven't read the book or understand what it is, it's an extreme event that was a low probability event um, that in retrospect looks like something we actually might have should have done something about or known about, but you didn't until it happened. And what that did was a trigger on a certainly a, a crisis in terms of what was going on with potential global growth. We were coming out of a trade war. Uh, Dan is referring to a political crisis where, you know, whatever you want to call it, we're in a political cycle and the market had not wanted to address that in any way. But more importantly, we, we on some level had a markets crisis because the Fed had injected so much liquidity into the market. Part of this is where we came from. So uh, I, I think then the black swan layers into what, what I really think today was about is I think people's lives are yeah. about to change dramatically. They are. People, are, people are getting shut out of their life. So when you're getting shut out of your life, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna buckle down. You're going to go to you're, cash. This right. is beyond like any type of moment we've seen in terms of that blood in the streets moment. This is truly a point where people's lives have been changed or are about to be changed and they're scared. Yeah, and let's back it up a bit. I mean, we are a, a market show, but 
I don't know if we can just do the normal market stuff tonight. I mean, certainly think about what happened today. First off, my daughter's school is postponed, canceled so pretty is much mine. for the rest of the year. Probably yours, probably many of yours out there as well. Every major sporting event, Broadway, everything shut down in one day in a 24-hour period. Stocks reflected that, Guy Adami. And in no way am I going to call the market bottom. It is not my job. There's probably more to come on the downside. But was there anything about either today's market action or anything that we saw anywhere that makes anyone, starting with you, Guy, believe that perhaps this was some kind of max fear and anxiety type of I wish I could say, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I thought today was a capitulation day. I don't. Not capitulation, but max anxiety. Max anxiety. I don't know. We have a weekend. A lot of things. I hope it's a max anxiety. I have no idea. I think Tim makes an extraordinarily important point in terms of People's lives are fundamentally changing. I'd like to think that, you know, maybe we did hit max. I don't think that's the case. I will say this. Given what's going on out there, I mean, you're going to have some pretty violent swings to the upside as well. And there'll be people that come on and say that was it. We'll have this V-shaped recovery. I don't think that's what this is about right now. And quickly, you know, people will say everything that's going on, the NBA overreaction. It's a reaction. I can't determine whether it's an overreaction or not, but what I'll tell you is to to think that it's not going to have a severe effect on earnings and therefore the multiple of this market... Right. Here's a really important point, though. So the last time we had this kind of velocity of a sell-off in equities, it was in 2018. It was Q4. We saw a 20 percent peak to trough decline, and we did have a reversal on one simple pivot from the Fed. That was really it. And then you didn't really see the sort of hit, the negative hit to earnings, right, in 2018. But you didn't see the earnings growth that people expected before that. When I think about what just happened here and everything that you guys are saying, you have to go back to the early 2000s, and you have to go back. Back to 2008 and 2009. Those are the last two times that we've had recessions. Those are the last two times we had protracted bear markets. The likelihood of all of this effect, this economic effect, and no matter how bad the health crisis is, will have a lasting effect. And the only thing that is going to cure it is going to be time. So the idea that the S&P 500 is above 3,500 anytime soon, put it out the window. It's not happening anytime soon. I can be that definitive about it because there's nothing that they can do curing all those crises that are going to get them back up there. All right. Well, let's get more now on the reaction to the Fed's big move, the markets, the credit markets and everything else. So we are pleased to be joined by Scott Miner, Chief Global Investment Officer at Guggenheim Partners. Remember, on February 13th with us, he said that we were in, quote, ludicrous season. The S&P would peak, on, it turned out, peaking on the 19th. Last week, he said the 10-year could fall to just 0.25%, no doubt mocked for that. But we had the 10-year hit 0.38 shortly after that, rebounding a little bit in the past few sessions. Scott, uh, welcome. I know you're busy. Thanks for taking some time out for us here on CNBC. Was there anything that, I called it a Fed fail at the top, and maybe that's right or wrong. Was there anything that you saw in the credit markets that indicated to you that things were loosening up? You mean in terms of proving, improving, uh, Brian? Yes. Uh, no. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, very situational right now. Uh, there are many securities that uh, you really can't get bids for. Um, the uh, liquidity in the market is, uh, I, I think we're in what would classically be a Nash equilibrium problem. That is, uh, that, that the market has been held up uh, artificially, and uh, there are sellers who'd like to get out, but the buyers who are willing to get in are at much lower levels. And so uh, it's, I think in the credit markets, we will see 
a, a sudden and precipitous collapse in prices. Okay. Well, what is it, well, Scott? What does that mean? A sudden and precipitous collapse? I'm looking at some of these closed-in funds. I'm looking at some of the high-yield ETFs. Looking at some of the debt that I can, and a right. lot of it is already down twenty and thirty and forty percent. Right. But those are those those are interesting. Um, Brian, those funds have more liquidity to them uh, than the underlying uh, markets. So, for instance, you know, a closed-end fund today and high yield might be down three percent, but uh, I've seen stuff trade down fifteen to twenty percent in the closed-end fund market. Now, you could say that's panic, uh, and and yes, I think it is, but it's also showing you uh, the lack of of liquidity. Uh, the, in the institutional world, uh, you know, institutions tend to have a little bit more flexibility. They don't have to sell a security, as opposed to uh, in in the more liquid markets like the stock market, where a specialist has to make a bid every day, and there's always a seller. So I think that we haven't really seen uh, prices marked down in selected asset categories. Uh, probably the most vulnerable. I mean, high yield and bank loans are still vulnerable, but uh, right now, in terms of uh, having true price discovery, uh, I think asset-backed securities, CLOs, uh, um, you know, whole business securitization, aircraft. Yeah. Uh, those, those are the most vulnerable places. Um, and I'll let everybody else jump in here for a second, but I want to ask you one more. We talked about it. QE, Scott. Obviously, I'm going back to 08, 09, TARP, TALF. Some of these programs, would you describe what the Fed did as those? or, And if not, do you think that we're going to need a return to those types of, of direct buying programs? Well, let, let's talk first. There's a number of things you're bringing up there, Brian. There's quantitative easing. Um, and uh, we, I mean, I've always argued that Treasury bill purchases were QE. Uh, now there's no argument anymore because they're buying across the yield curve, just like they did with QE. Uh, the Treasury bills that are maturing will get reinvested across the yield curve, just like QE. So, you know, we've definitely engaged in quantitative easing. Uh, our view is that if we are not already in a recession, we will slip into one very soon. Uh, and the analysis that we've done shows that it will probably take about four and a half trillion dollars worth of asset purchases uh, in order to to stabilize uh, the economy. Um, you know, on the on the TARP side, TARP is a creation of Congress. Uh, I, I think that we're uh, that would be the appropriate thing right now. One thing I like to remind the policymakers when I talk to them is, TARP was a money making opportunity. And if done correctly, it can be a money-making opportunity again. But I, I think the TARP program here would probably have to be more like $2 trillion uh, versus the sort of $700 billion that we did in the last uh, downturn. Mm-hmm. And uh, TALF, uh, if we have TARP, then we can do TALF. And uh, TALF would be a, a great idea to provide financing for illiquid assets. Uh, for people like me uh, who manage client money, uh, because you can't get you know liquidity or sorry you can't get financing uh, to lever your positions, and a lot of investors like hedge funds like to lever their positions. Scott, over the fall last in the fall, we talked about um, there was huge volatility in the bond market, and we're talking about ten-year yields. Over the course of the last week, and Brian just alluded to this, we've seen ten-year yields go from I think. 
35 or so basis points to where they currently are today, 80-something basis points. When, if you think about that, that is an astronomical move. And then you've seen 30-year go from a percent to, I think, they close at 1.4 percent. I mean, the, the, one of the mandates, and I'm air-quoting, you don't see me, of the Federal Reserve is price stability. Well, guess what? There is zero stability in the bond market, and the, and the volatility in the bond market is at levels where it should never even be close to. What does that mean? Well, Guy, I think what it's telling you is that um, uh, there's a high degree of illiquidity, even in the Treasury market. There's a high degree of uncertainty. Uh, and, uh, you know, as people come in and try to, you know, do purchases of Treasuries, uh, the bid offer spread has widened quite a bit. Uh, you know, a, uh, an off the run 30 year bond, for instance, uh, that is the bond that, that was the long bond just a few months ago. Uh, yesterday we were getting quotes that had a bid offer spread of one point. Uh, that's the sort of bid offer spread that you would normally see in, in junk bonds. Uh, you know, as, as for the movements, I mean, they're, they're mind numbing. Uh, now, a couple of days ago, we had the, the 30 year bond go up in price by 7%. Uh, if we came in and, and the stock market were up by 7%, uh, people would be stunned. And bonds are the low risk, you know, supposed to be low volatility, low risk. So, uh, you know, it, it's definitely, uh, telling you that, uh, uh, it's chaotic, uh, <laughs> People are probably overexposed on certain asset classes that they shouldn't be. And, uh, you know, we have a big dislocation here. Hey, hey Scott, it's Tim. Uh, again, thanks for joining us. The, the, one of the things that seems different about 2008, and, and this isn't a financial crisis, and we've t- talked about that. So I just want to talk about uh, the duration of clarity. We, we had assets uh, that bubbled to the surface, dead assets that bubbled to the surface. We had TARP, we had TALF. Uh, this all happened uh, within about a two-and-a-half-month span, at least when we got to the climax of it and the begin to repair. The current issue with the coronavirus is one that uh, what we understand is we probably won't totally understand the impact socially, therefore economically, and in terms of the stoppages for almost two months. Um, how does this make that recovery process and this policy process and this market uh, kind of dynamic get worse, frankly? I, 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 this is what troubles me. Well, you know, the, the first thing I would say, Tim, is that uh, – we're not in front of this. Uh, the policies that were proposed last night by the president are are not adequate to address the problem. Uh, the scale of what they're attempting is uh, not adequate to address the problem. And uh, you know, as we see, you know, Major League Baseball cancel its season. Uh, we see Disneyland closing. Uh, you know, I, I joked today, I said, you know, well, we're not going to have anywhere to go to spend any money anyway, yeah. uh, which means the, the economic damage here is going to be much larger than well, people anticipated. Let me ask you that, Scott. Um, you're part of the ownership team of the Dodgers. Is the baseball season going to go on? Well, what I read this afternoon in the Wall Street Journal is that MLB has canceled. I don't know if they've canceled the entire season. I've Spring been training. For now. So, oh, spring training. I mean, I, I think it's a question mark, Brian. They, they say it's going to go on. Um, you know, if, if it does, I hope you'll come and be at my birthday party at Dodger Stadium on the 28th of March. I might have to walk there if it's in California is the problem, Scott. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it's 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 I appreciate that. Listen, um, was there any you're a, you can do stocks, too. Was there any indication to you that there is a, a floor nearby in the equity market? 
Well, uh, it's interesting. Uh, you know, we are closing here, or did close, uh, just on the uptrend line uh, in uh, stocks for uh, since 2009. If if we continue below this level, Brian, uh, you know, it's the end of the bull market. Uh, you know, when I I consider you know something like the Spanish influenza. Um, the drawdown in the Dow Industrials uh, in the Spanish influenza was around 37%. We're down about 28% right now. And so uh, I, I think we're, we're due for a pause. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm looking at those lows that we got to uh, in December of 2018 as probably the next support level, really. And, uh, you know, tomorrow is going to be a very interesting session because if we break that trend line, uh, you know, that's the end of the, the bull market. And interestingly enough, uh, uh, you know, equities are pretty much unchanged since uh, the inauguration of the president. Hey, Scott, it's Brian Kelly. So you were talking about how much stimulus might be needed and that we might already be in a recession. And by my count, I think you came up with somewhere around six trillion dollars. And um, that seems like a pretty big package. So my question is, if we are in recession, how deep of a recession do you think we're looking at, and how long do you think we're looking at one for? Well, those are great questions. I mean, typically a recession lasts about eighteen months. Um, there's there's a you know a period here where um, you know we we're going to have a sharp contraction in consumption if for no other reason we don't have anywhere to go to consume. Um, so, uh, you know, consumption is the biggest driver in GDP. So, you know, we could see, you know, a drawdown in economic growth uh, in the second quarter that's the same as the drawdown in economic growth that we saw during the financial crisis. So, you know, I, I would anticipate that. Um, the problem is once you do damage to the economy, even if the coronavirus goes away, uh, the uh, the weakening of the structures of the economy, such as the airlines and and other businesses, uh, you know, is going to have a permanent impact, or let's say a prolonged impact, on on the behavior of the consumer and the business. And so, it's going to take a while to rebuild that confidence. So, I I really don't see us, uh, you know, having this thing turn around very fast. And that's one of the reasons why I may be a bit more bearish on stocks than some other people. So, so Scott, you know, just talking about the last two recessions, the S&P 500 basically got, got cut in half from the highs in 2007 to the lows in 2009, from the highs in 2000 to the lows in 02, 03. Um, so, you know, given all the uncertainty right now, I, I mean, is that what we should be expecting here, that, that you know, we're going to see the S&P 500 at the half of the 3,400 that it traded at on February 19th? Um, and, and then the other part of that question is, like, think about both times we had those recessions and think about where interest rates were, where we're Fed funds were, um, where, where the Fed balance sheet was. Is it going to be different this time? Does it have the potential to last much longer? Well, look, I, I think uh, I was on the show a month ago with uh, um, some of the cast of characters we're on today with, and um, you know, I, I said that I thought stocks could ultimately be 40 to 50 percent lower than their, their peak. So, I mean, we're, we're playing this thing out exa exactly as I had expected. Um, in terms of uh, the size of the stimulus, uh, I think that reflects the fact that uh, we don't have uh, a lot of tools here. 
um, you know, if, if interest rates were at a higher level, or if uh, uh, you know that, that we had uh, you know other structural thing, uh, forces in place, uh, it could help us. But uh, the reality is that it's going to take a lot of of uh, uh, it's going to take a lot of of liquidity from the Federal Reserve if. The policymakers do what they did in the crisis, which was lean on them, and uh, it's going to take uh, a large, uh, a large bailout of some kind, or sorry, I want to say a large support package uh, from the government, because uh, uh, corporations today are so much more highly levered than they were at. At the time of the financial crisis, and they're companies much more are, fragile. But, but companies are, Scott, but but not the banks in a, in the same way as 07, Correct. I mean, do you see? You don't see any chance of this becoming a banking crisis, do you? No, I, I don't think so, Brian. I mean, obviously, obviously, if uh, um, you know, we have a, a wave of corporate defaults, which I expect, uh, credit conditions will tighten. Uh, that is, it'll be harder for you know businesses to get bank lines and bank revolvers. Uh, but uh, you know, the more important component of of financing uh, is the bond market. And uh, you know, we've already got the bond market shut down. Uh, it's virtually impossible to do a new issue, even for the highest quality borrowers. And uh, you know, until we get some confidence back into the market, uh, you know, we basically have no access to uh, to debt or capital. But uh, you know, the only reason people are going to be looking for capital is to cover negative cash flow, and and you know, the market's not going to look kindly upon that. Scott, we got to let you go, but we really appreciate you calling in on a uh, really, truly an historic. It's been a lot of historic nights, Scott, but I think tonight maybe more than uh, than any other. But please keep us informed about what you're seeing in the credit market. You've been spot on. We appreciate you calling in to CNBC, Scott. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. All right. I mean, some sage words there. Listen from Scott. I mean, I know that he took a lot of heat when he was talking about where the yield curve might go and the markets may go. But so far, it has played out. Does anybody disagree with anything that he has said? No. It's a lot of what he said, we've been saying for, for quite some time. The, the problem is the market, you know, continued to fly in the face of all of us to the upside again. But let me just say this. It's interesting. And you can't do the counterfactual thing. I totally get it. But Scott said something interesting. You know, the Fed, they they don't really have a lot of dry powder here. So go back to October 18th, uh, October of 2018, November, when then Jerome Powell was saying we're going to reduce our balance sheet and we're going to raise rates. And the market went, I think, S&P was 3,000, 28.50 or so, down to 23.50. And they called everything off, right? And they went back towards what we've been doing now, the madness. And the market rallied 100%. Well, guess what? We're within earshot of that December low, and yet we have no bullets left in the gun. So my point is, I happen to think they were on the right path back then, and I know I'm going to get fricasseed on Twitter for it, but they were doing the right thing at the time. There was no reason to yeah. do what they did in that environment. That's a totally fair comment. You know, some of the irony, I, I would chime in now, though, that, you know, if anything today, and the speculation around what's the Fed going to do, the speculation is actually now, we don't know what, Pe- what Powell's going to do. We actually don't know if he's going to go and buy assets. When, when, the, when it's the darkest is when we actually know least about what the Fed's doing. We've got the least commentary. Under the Bernanke Fed, at least they were going out of their way to, to say we're all about transparency. Transparency. There does not need to be any mystery here. Um, and I think there's a lot of mystery right now. And in fact, it seems as if Powell is pushing back against. Uh, you know, 
I share your frustration, Guy, but if there's a time to go out and buy assets, it's now. That's why I asked about TARP I mean, and TALF and all that other stuff. Well, but, but also, let's, let's look at what other central banks around the world have done. Let's remember that the Japanese central bank is buying ETFs. They buy ETFs. It would not surprise me after we're through this cycle as part of the bailout package mm. that the Federal Reserve or some part of the government comes in and is buying ETFs, whether it be the high-yield ETF, if there's dislocations that Scott's talking about, uh, or whether it be the oil patch ETF or you something so? like that. Really? I, I wouldn't you be think, surprised. Let me ask you this, Dan, very quickly, very quickly. Do you think there's any chance that the stock or the bond market will shut down for a couple days? Because if the economy shuts down, is there any chance that could happen? Here's what I think the risk that you run. So we've been hearing about all these liquidity issues in the credit market. So what's happening right now all over New York and all over centers where a lot of these financial institutions are, they have people working from home. They have these kind of schedules going on. And this is a huge problem, actually, for liquidity purposes. And so if you think that today was the liquidation, it hasn't because these people have not really spread out yet. And the days that risk managers are separated from the head traders and all that sort of stuff, those are the that's going to be the time where we have the scariest moment. And so why do we bring up charts? Why do we think about some of these levels? Why do we think about valuation levels when there's no visibility? Because that's what a lot of the machines are looking at. So when Guy mentions that low at 2350 in the S&P 500 from December uh, 24th or 25th, 2018, that's probably a level where things are getting a bit overdone. And I want to make one point about just how this market's been working relative to what the Fed has been doing. In late October, when the Fed really started expanding their balance sheet, this was after those three rate cuts. The S&P 500 rallied about 11, 11 and percent in what felt like a straight line. So take that out of there. OK, let's think about 30, 50. That was the level that really should have been a lot of technical resistance in the S&P 500. And here we are now at 2,500 or something like that. It's not the end of the world, especially if your time horizon is not next week or two weeks yeah. from now. So I, I just think that, listen, there's more dislocations to come. Um, but, I, you know, at the end of the day, I think we're going to have TALF, TARP. You're going to have everything. It's got to hit it all at once, and we got to have the health crisis under control, which I think a lot of yep. people on this network have been echoing now for weeks. By the way, headlines crossing just now on, on that. I thought people were going to fricassee me for saying mm. that. New York City mayor aims to keep New York Stock Exchange trading going with no issues. That just crossing. People think we're nuts if you're in Ohio or Idaho. The reality is, folks, life here has changed. You got groups of people. This is about as many people in one room as you're going to get. And to Dan's point, when you've got head traders, risk managers, everybody trying to coordinate, but they're all in different spots or in their home, it could be difficult. All right, CNBC has continuing coverage, of course, of the sell-off. Where we go from here, be sure to catch our special report, Markets in Turmoil, tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Right now, we've got some breaking news on Amazon, actually. It has something to do with New York, as a matter of fact. Let's get to Deirdre Bosa on that. Hey, Brian, this is globally. Amazon is instructing all employees around the world to begin working from home if they're able to. The expansion of this policy going global is one of the most aggressive stances a company of this size has taken. Remember, Amazon has more than 650,000 full-time employees worldwide. This follows Google's recommendation earlier this week that all of its employees globally work remotely if they're able to. And like other tech companies, guys, Amazon is providing compensation for employees diagnosed with coronavirus or placed into quarantine. That's up to two weeks of pay. And they're also continuing to pay hourly employees that support the company's offices around the world. That includes jobs like janitors, security guards. It also applies to the many, many warehouse workers as well. Back to you. All right, Deirdre Bosa on that. Deirdre, thank you very much. All right, let's turn now to Washington, where lawmakers are moving closer to putting together some kind of coronavirus aid package. Elon Moyes on Capitol Hill with more on what they're trying to do. Elon. 
Well, Brian, the Speaker of the House and the Treasury Secretary have spoken on the phone five times today on the coronavirus package. The last time was at 3.50 p.m. Aides tell me that progress is being made and that they are moving closer to compromise, though some outstanding issues remain. And while those negotiations still go on behind the scenes, the House is officially in recess, though members were just recently advised that votes are still expected to happen later on tonight. Over here in the Senate, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has already left for the weekend, as have most lawmakers as well. But, but McConnell has canceled recess for next week, and so you can expect to see them back on Monday. He tweeted that he is glad that talks are ongoing between the administration and Speaker Pelosi. He hopes that Congress can pass bipartisan legislation to continue combating the coronavirus and keep our economy strong. Now, all this comes as there are concerns about the health of some lawmakers. Senator Lindsey Graham has announced that he is self-quarantining after being at Mar-a-Lago last weekend with that Brazilian delegation. He says this is out of an abundance of caution, but there are now seven senators' offices or seven senators who themselves have self-quarantined. So we'll see how long the Capitol can continue to function. Keep monitoring it and let you know if I learn anything else, Brian. All right, Ilan, thank you very much for that update as well. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about this before we bring in another big guest. we got John Hess of Hess Oil, by the way, coming up, which is another uh, very important interview there. Um, and I want to go a little bit more to what Dan just sort of suggested. I mean, I think people don't realize Congress can do these things and we can have these programs, but you're still, even in the age of computers, you still need... We still need humans to do a lot of this work. Well, you, yes, you need humans to do that. And you also need the humans in Washington to understand that we're in a crisis time and not to be going back and forth. I mean, it's great that, the, that they talked on the phone five times. They should be in the same room trying to get something done. I mean, if you look at what's going, around, along, uh, what's going on around the world, there is some serious issues coming. And to think that you're going to go on vacation next week, to think that, oh, well, maybe we'll come back on Monday, is, is frankly insane. And this is a bit of a political crisis because the more you go down this path, in the state that people are in, you end up losing faith in your political leaders. And that's never a good thing. Yeah, I mean, leaders lead by example. And, and, and you know, it's, it's very disappointing uh, that, that McConnell's phoning this one in. Uh, I don't care what the vacation schedule is. I mean, again, this is the, the health crisis is something that is 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 clearly we're, we realize we're trying to catch up uh, and, and the financial packages around addressing that. And, and bipartisan, you know, that that should be both sides of the aisle coming forward, addressing a health issue. It, it, this isn't this isn't about throwing pork into a budget. And so yeah. anyway, I, I think that is where the markets are. The markets don't get any confidence out of that administration. Well, the crude catastrophe continued today as well. Oil falling another six percent to thirty one and change per barrel. No sector of this market has been hit harder than energy, especially since that Saudi Russia price war began. The biggest oil and gas stock ETF, the XOP, has lost sixty five percent of its value. In just 70 days. So what happens from here? We are very honored to be joined by John Hess, CEO of Hess Corporation. John, we appreciate you calling in. Thank you very much. An important time to hear uh, from a guy like you. First off, in the short term, what's uh, what's going to happen? You think there's any chance that Russia and Saudis meet, that OPEC can scratch together a supply cut deal? And even if they did, would it matter? Uh, nice to be on your program, Brian. Thank you. Uh, oil markets are experiencing two major shocks right now. 
One is demand from the coronavirus, and one is supply from the Saudi-Russia price war. In the past, oil prices have been hit either by a supply shock or a demand shock. Right now, we have two. Uh, and in terms of demand, the fear from the coronavirus uh, has had a huge impact on demand. Uh, basically, last year we expected, uh, for this year actually, uh, we expected uh, demand to be going up a million barrels a day. Now it's estimated to go down 500,000 barrels a day. And the way the economy is going uh, and the way people are being quarantined, I think 12 million people uh, fly a day, and that number is way down now. Uh, that estimate could be uh, uh, on the optimistic side. And in terms of supply, you were just talking about it. Last week, the Russians uh, flexed their muscles, and Saudi Arabia decided uh, to flood the world's oil market to teach the Russians and oil producers a lesson, and that's really that they have a big stick. But the real problem here is Saudi Arabia and Russia are playing chicken at the world's expense. The economic problem we're facing today is a lot more than oil. And the oil price crash could be a catalyst that propels the world into an economic recession. And the deeper we get in, the harder it will be to get out. Is there anything that the government could? We were just, you heard us probably talking earlier about all these programs and, and the Fed and stimulus. Is there anything, John, the government could or should do for the U.S. oil and gas industry? No, Brian, I, I don't think a bailout uh, is what's in order here for U.S. shale producers. Uh, I think the, any, any work that government should do for, uh, is for people in need, uh, people that are suffering the most, uh, that have lost their jobs or aren't getting paid. At the same time, U.S. shale producers are the real casualty of this oil price crash. Uh, they have to run for cash. Uh, they have to survive. Uh, they don't have the debt or equity markets. You guys were talking about that before, uh, about really keeping all businesses alive. Uh, I think the outcome of this is that the U.S. rig count will probably go down at least 50%. Uh, and as a consequence, next year, uh, oil production in the United States will probably be down a million and a half to two million barrels a day. A key point here is that shale is a strategic engine for the United States with a significant impact on jobs, on national security, and as we've all seen, on the stock market. When oil goes down, the stock market goes down. They're no longer inversely correlated. Hey, John, it's Tim Seymour. Again, thank you for joining us on a crazy day and evening. Uh, I see you quoted as saying we're in the long-term business. So talk a little bit about how companies aren't necessarily riding the wave here and that, in fact, uh, you know, CapEx has been adjusted, OpEx has been adjusted over the last few years and where balance sheets are for people that are very concerned about uh, maybe not you, uh, but other players in the industry. No, it's a great question. Um, look, eh, people have to realize that the oil industry is a long-term business, as you're saying. The investment you make today provides the oil supply that we need five and ten years from now. And the two major challenges the oil industry faces for the future is actually investment and climate change. And while the world is awash in oil right now, the International Energy Agency has made clear that the world needs to invest $65 billion, uh, $650 billion a year to grow oil and gas supply to meet future demand. For the last five years, the number has ranged between $350 billion and $420 billion, way under what the number needs to be. And the economic meltdown we're going uh, through right now makes it even more difficult. 
The other challenge that everybody talks about, rightfully so, is climate change. And climate change is real. It's the greatest scientific challenge for the 21st century. And as much as we hope for major technological breakthroughs, the International Energy Agency has run some scenarios, and the one for sustainable development, where all the pledges of the Paris Climate Accord are met, oil and gas will still be 47% of the energy mix in 2040. So the real thing that's troubling, I think, is in a lot of the political debates that are going on, I think a lot of the politicians hope that they can wave a magic wand and just have oil and gas disappear. Uh, but they may have climate literacy, but they don't have energy literacy. We need both for sustainable development, and we have to realize that oil and gas are essential for human development as well as economic welfare. Mr. Hess, it's Guy. Thank you again for coming on. Uh, you mentioned the importance of the shale industry and specifically in our energy industry at large. Is there a chance that, you know, instead of pitting themselves against one another, the Saudis and the, and the Russians did this to cripple our industry? Just when we get to energy independence, they pull the rug out beneath the price of the underlying commodity. Yeah, I, I definitely think that is uh, a major objective of what's going on right now. But it's not just uh, uh, the U.S. shale producers that are going to be hurt by this oil price crash. It's actually Saudi Arabia and Russia. Uh, with price drop that we've had, uh, which is very severe, uh, we project that Saudi Arabia uh, will lose over $100 billion this year. Uh, Russia will lose over $100 billion a year. Both of them have uh, oil as 70% of their exports, mm -hmm. and their financial reserves are about 400 to $500 billion each. So they're both going to be losing 25% of their financial uh, reserves just because they're in this price war. Nobody wins a price war, and they're not going to win a price war. You, you know, the, you look at the XOP ETF, John, and it's like every stock is, you know, being priced into almost going to zero. And, and obviously not everybody's going to go to zero. And there will be companies, as you said, others said, that will go bankrupt. But do you fight the market is just discounting companies maybe like yours that have unique opportunities? I mean, I'm not going to ask you to toot your own company's horn, but you have a huge new operation in Guyana, which everybody says this massive you know, opportunity, do you feel like investors is dumping everything without thinking about the individual companies involved? Uh, Brian, uh, our company is in a very strong position to weather the storm. Uh, first of all, we have 80% of our oil hedged for this year at $55 WTI and $60 Brent. Secondly, we're going to be making an announcement soon that has a major CapEx reduction planned. Uh, it doesn't make sense for any shale producer right now to drill for oil at that $30 price you were talking about before. So we're going to have a major decrease in our Bakken program and in other programs across the company because right now every oil company should just hunker down and run for cash. In addition, what makes us different than uh, most of the shale companies in the United States is we have a diversified portfolio. We actually have cash generators in our portfolio the Deepwater Gulf of Mexico and Malaysia, and with the capital uh, budget reductions that we're going to be having in the Bakken, the Bakken becomes a cash generator. So our whole goal right now is basically to preserve cash, to live to fight another day, and protect the great investment opportunity we have in Guyana. All right, John Hess with some uh, tough talk and tough words, but smart words, John, and we, we do appreciate it. Thank you very much. We'll look forward to that announcement, I guess, about the cost plans. I have a feeling they're going to be part of everybody. John, thank you very much.
All right. Well, let's get you up to speed on several market developments, major developments outside of the market as well on the coronavirus that it broke within the last 24 hours. Of course, you've probably heard, hard not to, many major events, almost all of them are pretty much canceled across the country for the next few months. Let's get more now with Julia Borston with a recap of the day's news. Julia. Brian, well, the most recent recent big closure is Disneyland Resort here in Anaheim, scheduled to be closed from the morning of March 14th through the end of the month. And leaders of the world's largest live events and concert companies, including the CEOs of Live Nation and AEG, announcing that they recommend postponing all large-scale events through the end of March. And then there are the cancellations and suspensions of major league sporting events. Just today, the NCAA canceling the March Madness basketball tournament, along with all other men's and women's winter and spring championships. This after last night, the NBA suspended its season after a Utah Jazz player tested positive for coronavirus. The NHL is suspending its season a month ahead of the playoffs and Major League Baseball delaying the start of its season by at least two weeks. And Broadway shows will be suspended starting tonight through April 12th. This after Governor Andrew Cuomo banned gatherings of more than 500 people and said facilities with occupancy of 500 or fewer must reduce the capacity by half. Brian, back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you very much. All right, uh, outside of that, guys, I want, you know, stocks are trading after hours, and I know there's probably some hope out there. We're going to get a bounce, and maybe we will, Guy, but Dan, you and I were just looking. Uh, Apple is down another 3 or 4% after hours. Microsoft down another 3% or more after hours. We ended on the lows. What does that well, tell so you? Here's a, here's a little thing, all right? So this is maybe a little inside baseball. Those two stocks, there's no news about them. They're trading down. You don't know why. You're really curious. It's light volume. There's a stock that Julia just mentioned, Disney. There's news. That's the news we were waiting for. We talked about it. When is they going to close their U.S. parks? We know they had Shanghai and they had Hong Kong. The stock closed at about 92. It's trading at 90. The fact that it's not at 85, I think that, that's good. There's news out in that name. Watch that name. See what sort of relative strength it shows to some of these other names. Now, again, why is the market trading this way? Because we don't have visibility. We don't have guidance. Microsoft and Apple pulled their guidance, so we don't know. Until companies start defining what's going on and how they're doing it, then they'll probably start trading better. So I would encourage all those CEOs yeah. need yeah. to get out there a little bit. Well, so right, it's, right. It's, you actually make a really good point about the rest of the market here, too. You know, there is some good news today. I know it sounds terrible when parks get closed down and cities get closed down and these type of things. But we know from the history of this disease that once you start doing it, that is what you need to do to control and contain the disease. So that means the sooner you do that stuff, the sooner we get to an economic recovery. So to Dan's point, you know, news out on Walt Disney, everybody probably expected this. There is some good news that we're moving in the right direction. I would expect this with many other stocks over the yeah, next couple and, of and, and, and so And so then back to a couple stocks and back to Apple and Microsoft. I mean, when you're putting your list together of high-quality companies, th- these are two companies that are obviously right there. Um, and, and there's a different reasons why they're right there. They include fundamentals. They include balance sheet. They include their core businesses. But they also include the fact that these are stocks that have actually – seemingly been more resilient on the way down. Now, that's a bit of a double-edged sword, because if you look at Microsoft, it's only down 2% year-to-date. Microsoft is up 53% year-over-year. And if you look at, actually, the NASDAQ, it's outperformed the S&P during this downdraft, or certainly just year-to-date. It's outperformed the S&P by almost 750 basis points. So either 
you're going to see some of these stocks and the Nasdaq coming back to the S&P, which it's diverged from, or that, you know, this is a case where these are some of the greatest stocks. I happen to think uh, these are market proxies. And when you get the further capitulation, uh, those are stocks that I think yep. are proxy plays. And, and I think they're going to lose ground. Amazing. Yeah. So to Dan's point, watch Disney. Maybe the bottom is when they announce the closure. All right. Let's talk more now about Microsoft. Fundstrat's Rob Slimer is spotting something interesting in the charts. And, Rob, if it's just one thing that's interesting, I'm going to... Well, I can't come over there and hug you, but I'll just wave. All right. Well, let's talk about the market in general. Look, there's two things we always got to think about when we're talking about technicals. There's magnitude and price levels, and then time, which we, which we measure with uh, momentum indicators. So, look, the S&P has managed to slice through pretty much every technical level without any problem so far. It's down another 10% today. It took out the 200-day. It took out the 200-week today. That was a fairly important level. That's the secular uptrend that was in place from 2011, 2016. And we took it out today. So there's a lot of damage happening. Where's the next level? So this, I think they were talking about it earlier, but 23.46 is the low in the fourth quarter of 18. That also happens to represent a 62% retracement, roughly, of this entire 2016 to 2020 move. So it's a fairly important level. So we haven't seen a lot of evidence or a lot of divergences that the market's able to dig in and find a level. That's really the next level that I think is important. If it can't hold there, we're probably looking at something around 2100, which is a pretty big number. The key point here is when we look at these weekly momentum indicators, they track one to two quarter shifts. They began to stall out as we moved into the end of January, beginning of February. It was a fairly good timing tool. Never expected that kind of magnitude. But it argues we're not going to see a low or a bottom until we move well into April, possibly May. So it's going to take time before we actually see a bottom take hold. Let's take a look at the Nasdaq, because that's, as Tim was just pointing out, huge leadership, basically at new relative performance highs versus the S&P. But it took out its 200-day. And the next key, key level here is between... 6,600 and 7,000. So that takes you sort of back to these lows. And here again, this momentum indicator says there's still more time. It's too early to back up the truck to come back to these names. We need to see some bottoming. And lastly, right to the point of Microsoft, look, we took out 141. 131 is, is right around this level. We're starting to take, oh, sorry, 131 is down at this level. And the next level below that takes you all the way back to 116. So momentum says there's still more time, probably into the middle of the second quarter. And in terms of relative performance, these stocks need to come in. It's probably going to put pressure on a lot of the leading areas of the market. And that's when we start to see a bottom, when we start, start to break these leading stocks. All right, Rob Slimer, looking uh, at Microsoft, especially. Mike, uh, Rob, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, this, this comment that, that Dan made. I think it was Dan Niles who had made this, you know, you buy when Disney says they're going to shut down. Is there some sort of indication that we think that if companies were to come out and say, you know what, we're taking the month off, that maybe that would actually help the markets in some ways? No. No. I, no. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. That I, I, I can't. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Clarity. But I understand what you're saying. Bending there the curve down clarity. to BK's point. And that could, be, that could define, like, the height of the unsettling news and stuff. I think you make a fair point. It's interesting. You know, Rob mentioned Microsoft, and, and, I, and I get such a kick out of Twitter because – the trolls are out in force. They say we never make bold calls. But I'll tell you categorically, because I know because I was sitting here, on February 11th, Microsoft made an all-time high of 190.40, I believe. And if you recall on that day, on rather large volume, it reversed, closed significantly lower on the day. And we sat here and said, if you were looking for the turn in the name, 
That was probably it. And now history, you know, proves that we're correct. So now if you're looking for an entry level, I've got to tell you something. This 140 level is where we sort of traded sideways at for quite some time. I think nine or so months ago, Dan's looking at the chart. So there is clearly opportunity. And Microsoft is not going out of business. And what they do is still extraordinarily viable. The market's just correcting. So I think to Rob's yep. point... You know, you saw the turn, but I think now you're getting towards levels where if you've been waiting to buy the stock, this looks pretty interesting to me. All right. Well, another area of the economy that you need to watch very closely are the restaurants. Of course, those stocks falling hard, the coronavirus spreading, the economy looking down. Let's bring in now Bob, Dar- Bob Darrington of Telsey Advisory Group. Now, Bob's been getting daily updates on traffic trends. Uh, Bob, it's the most owned small business in the United States. What kinds of traffic trends are you seeing from key parts of the United States right now? Well, you know, I think the most obvious is what we've all heard, or many of us have heard, about uh, the Seattle market. And the Seattle market is probably ground zero for the most impacted by the coronavirus at this point. You know, traffic trends there are down, you know, about 20%, you know, since the uh, uh, the, the spread of the, uh, the virus has really, you know, gone uh, uh, viral within that community. So I think, you know, there's no doubt that ultimately the spread, you know, is something you were trying to all, you know, guess, follow, and ultimately try and, you know, figure out how is it going to affect these restaurant companies, uh, the top line, ultimately the bottom line. You so, think it? You think it'll, I mean, is, is drive-through going to save them, Bob, or are people just going to stop going altogether? You know, I, you know, save is relative. I think certainly the... Uh, uh, those brands, uh, fast food and fast casual, that have more por- portable food offerings, uh, they're certainly going to do better. You know, th- they have less social interaction. You can go through a drive-through. You can get food delivered. Uh, you know, in that regard, I think most consumers view those uh, if they're concerned about quote social distancing. Certainly, those are better options. So uh, I think. Con- Go ahead. Sorry, Bob. So can we talk about Starbucks? Because to me, it's a stock I'm long. Um, it's a stock that I, I think fundamentally uh, the short run we know is, is going to be a disaster. But, but if anything, U.S. same-store sales comps have been very strong. Um, you know, their China business has been an important part of their growth. The valuation was a big challenge. But this stock's gone from almost 100 bucks down to $62, $63. And, and the valuation is very different. Could you talk about that name in the context yeah. of Corona? Yeah, uh, I don't want to rain on your parade, but, you know, there's two things <laughs> that go. we really need. <laughs> the parade has been killed. So. <laughs> One is obviously the coronavirus and the impact there. Two, ultimately, is what happens with consumer spending and the economy post this. You know, do ultimately consumers, you know, because their own businesses or their jobs mm-hmm. or layoffs, you know, there's been some issues affecting their spending, uh, you know, will, will we see a slowdown? If so... How slow will it be? Will it be as bad as back in 2007, 8, 9? Or will it bounce back immediately to the levels that we saw in January? Yeah, that's um, fair. You know, I think the likelihood is that we're going to see something in between. So that will work against All right, Bob Darrington. Of- tell us, Bob, we got it. We got to leave it there. Bob, we appreciate you calling in. Uh, certainly not only the stocks, but about uh, 15 million restaurant workers around the country are, are probably a little bit concerned right now. We're thinking about them as well. It's not just about publicly traded companies. Bob, thank you very much. All right, let's talk gold. The commodity also sort of maybe unusually battered in today's sell-off. Gold handing in its second worst day of the year. But options traders are betting the bullion bounce 
might be coming. Let's come out of Mike Coe's in San Francisco with more on a surprising day when one might have thought that gold would have got a bid, Mike. Yeah, well, you know, it's hard to say. One of the things that we definitely have seen is a big bump in options volume on gold, and that's not surprising because gold has often been thought of as a safe haven. We did see calls out trading puts today in GLD, which is the ETF that tracks gold. The most active options when I was looking at this earlier today were the May 180 calls. We saw about 18,000 of those trading for $1.12. But I would caution people from thinking necessarily that gold is a safe haven in all of this. It sold off along with equities in the latter half of February, and it's sold off recently. I think more likely this is probably a hedge for those that are thinking that some response, basically, to what's going on right now might be inflationary. I don't necessarily think that it will be. Everything we see is deflationary. But this is a cheap way to make a bet if you're inclined to think that gold could somehow catch a bid right here. All right, Mike Coe. Mike, thank you very much, and be well, buddy. We're thinking about you out west. All right, well, it wasn't just gold that fell today. Bitcoin had one of its worst days tough day ever down almost 30 percent also maybe a little bit surprisingly bk well not actually that surprising i mean so a lot of people for a long time have said oh well bitcoin is your safe haven and what i've tried to tell people is that this is a speculative asset today that is trying vying to be a safe haven so it's still subject to all the speculative flows and so for the same reason that gold fell today bitcoin fell it tends to be a lot more uh, volatile obviously so you see a 30 percent drop so why did it fall because people want cash people were in this speculating that bitcoin's going to be the next digital gold i still believe in that thesis but that being said when somebody taps you on the shoulder and your risk manager says cut all your positions you cut all your positions you cut your gold you cut your microsoft and you cut your bitcoin and i think that's what happened here today just like everything else in my view it's probably going to take some time to recover Anybody got a different view on Bitcoin? Well, I, I think BK's discussion of the asset class is this is an evolving asset class. And, and I, I, I think the proponents of Bitcoin have not been saying this is a safe haven. I think they've been saying it's an alternative asset class. And it's certainly one, if you look at some of the other digital co- tokens and, and coins, that it was actually totally about speculation. But that Bitcoin was becoming the, the, the proxy play for the sector. Um, high risk assets in an environment like this, and it includes, it includes cannabis stocks, which had already sold off dramatically. They're going to get torched. Um, and, and it's just the way it goes with less liquidity, um, high yield. There's no bid. I mean, this is this is what happens in these markets during times like this. And we're asking ourselves, have we hit that liquidity uh, capitulation moment? And it's very difficult to tell that. right? Yeah, now. I would just add this is that, you know, you kind of do sell what you can. And, you know, the point about Microsoft and Apple year over year, they're still up pretty significantly. Yeah, Bitcoin is still up pretty significantly year over year. So if you're a long term investor and you're looking not to sell the oil thing or whatever, the thing that's down 70 percent, you want to sell the thing that's still up, you know, in your versus your prices. That's why you see these things as sources of funds. And that's just one reason why you're seeing Microsoft and Apple down in the aftermarket. People are looking around and saying, what can I sell? And that's it. And by the way, let's let's finish there and kind of go into final trades guy. Dom, you got Apple down four percent right now. Microsoft two and a half. The SPY because they trade after hours down about two percent. It looks like the sun. It's early. But it looks like the selling could continue. What are you going to be looking for tomorrow? Ten-year yields, 100%. I mean, the continued volatility in the bond market. You know, I thought the most distressing thing to me today 
was the move in 10-year yields. So again, the volatility there is unprecedented, and the fact that yields didn't crater today, to me, is somewhat concerning. So if you ask me what I'm looking at, it's that. Yeah, I would just say this, that, you know, Disney tonight, they came out there, they didn't quantify what the parks closing are going to be for them. I think we need to see some more leadership from some major CEOs and getting out there and putting their, their kind of necks on the line a little bit and saying, we're doing this and this is what it might cost us. So the one thing I would say that we've heard from everybody tonight on this desk and all the guests that we have is this is going to take some time. So I know there's a lot of people out there looking to catch that V bottom. I don't think we're going to have that. You're not going to miss it. Make sure you have cash in this environment. There will be a time to take advantage of the opportunities, but it's just going to take some time. Yeah, and I think we're, we're looking for some signs of confidence uh, on, on policy. And this is you know, wherever it can come from, because it has to be coordinated. Frankly, on the state level, it's, it's, uh, it's, we're seeing it. We're seeing at least some follow through. But I think the markets right now uh, are, are, are struggling to find some sense of you know, getting out of the uncertainty zone. Valuations are, are, are something we can figure out. As these guys are talking about, probably not overnight. I think it's certainly time to look at valuations, but not tomorrow. Guys, thank you very much. Thanks to all of our guests here. Truly historic night. Dow down 10%. We've got continuing coverage tonight at 7 p.m. Mad with Jim starts right now.